you've heard the expression, haven't you? That when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And I want to begin this morning by asking you the question, when the going gets tough, where is it that you get going to? Because life is tough, isn't it? Circumstances, situations that we find ourselves in, sufferings of all kinds, when they come, what's our reflex? How do we react? What is our initial response? Where is it that we flee when we think that we need rescue? For all of us, there are certain things that will happen that will prompt almost an identical response. For most of us watching this morning, we live in the United Kingdom. And so when particular emergencies take place, our reflex will be to dial 999. I'm not sure if anyone's ever been in that situation. I pray that you haven't and that you won't. Thank God I have never had to dial that number so far in my life. But that's a pretty common reflex for us in extreme circumstances. Uh, car accident, uh, fire, uh, heart attack, something of that nature. First response, 999 on the telephone, get the emergency services out. Perhaps maybe in, in less extreme circumstances, the thing that we will do will be immediately turn to a family member or perhaps a, a skilled friend. Something is happening and we want those people around us who have the knowledge, who have the desire to involve themselves in, to be involved. That would be another common reflex. For some people, maybe many who are watching this morning, a common reflex will be to pray. To find yourself in a desperate, a dire situation, and just like that, to turn to prayer. Well, in today's passage, we find out about the early disciples' reflexes when they find themselves in a difficult situation. Today, we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 4, and it falls hot on the heels of last week's passage. And it's the first time that Jesus' followers have really come under any sort of scrutiny, where they've come under pressure and censor from the law, as it were. It's always useful to have a, a recap, to build a picture of how we got where we are today. And I want us to remember, particularly this morning, that we've had chapter 3 of the book of Acts. Peter and John and others are making their way up to the temple when they meet a 40-year-old man who've been unable to walk from birth, and they offer him healing in the name of Jesus. Miraculously, this gentleman is made whole in his body again, and everyone is amazed. Crowds start to gather. They're desperate to find out how such a wonderful thing could have happened. And Peter, yet again, seizes the opportunity to explain how something which seems so otherworldly occurring makes perfect sense in light of Jesus. Peter seizes the opportunity to explain how such a thing is possible and it all revolves around Jesus being the Messiah. Because of him, Peter says, because of what he has done, what he promised to do, what he promises he will do. 
and our having faith in him, even paralyzed people walking again, makes sense, Peter says. And he encourages that gathered crowd, not just to be amazed at miraculous things happening amongst them, but to come themselves to Jesus. He encourages them to repent, to turn from dismissing Jesus, to engaging him and trusting him, to be saved. He speaks about sins being washed and wiped away, of lives being filled with God's presence and being a part now even of what God has in store more amazingly for the future. And the folks did respond. It says that their number swelled from around 3,000 to just over 5,000. At Pentecost, when Peter joined the dots between these amazing things that were happening and Jesus. And when he does the same here, people turn and trust and become part of Jesus' family, the church. And last week, this is what John was exploring, wasn't it? How for some inexplicable reason, this kindness shown, this explanation of the miraculous landed them up in jail, landed them up in hot water, landed them up in front of the authorities, dragged out to explain what it was that they were up to. Which, of course, they did with more than a reference to Jesus and yet another invitation to turn and to trust in him alone. But the authorities, again inexplicably, because they couldn't deny anything that had been going on, they couldn't refute any of the teaching of Peter and of John, they just simply threatened them. Threatened them not to speak or teach in his name ever again. Or else... Dot, dot, dot. We're left to imagine what might happen to them if they dare um, ignore the authorities' words. Now imagine that. Imagine that for a moment. This still young church has experienced only positive things so far. It's only known blessing. There's been growth at an astonishing rate. And then... All of a sudden, this one act of special kindness to someone who has suffered so much already in their lives brings with it imprisonment and threats, instructions to keep your mouth shut or what happened to your master might happen to you. We have to imagine that that would have been a pretty scary, pretty shocking, pretty discouraging situation to find yourself in. The juggernaut! which was gathering momentum, the church has now hit this roadblock. What do you think their reflex is going to be? How do you think it is that they're going to respond? Don't just think about them. Think for a moment about yourself. How would you respond? How would you react in this situation? Or in your own life situations, when life is sunny and happy and filled with roses, you're on top of the mountain, it's easy to praise God, to thank God, to give glory and dues to God. But then all of a sudden, life makes it feel like the wheels are coming off. What would be your reflex? What is your reflex in that situation? We're going to read Acts chapter 4, verse 23 through to 31 to see how they respond what their reflex is. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them, the threats that had been made. 
When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed. Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now then, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your words with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place that they were in where they were meeting was shaken. and they were filled once more with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. Did you spot it? Did you see how they responded to this stressful, scary situation? Quickly, two things, two things that they did. One, they went to be with their people. They went to be with their people. And together, they went to be with their God. When they were faced with this huge obstacle in front of them, this scary situation, they got together and they went to God. Let's think about that first one. They went to be with their own people. That's what it says. They were released and they went back and reported everything. It strikes me as being the exact opposite of how most of us respond in stressful situations, in scary situations, in difficult, saddening situations in our lives. When we're struggling, I wager that most of us tend to isolate ourselves, hide away, hide away especially from church. Hide away, especially from our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we think to ourselves, well, do you know what? I'm going to retreat. I'm going to rest. I'm going to recuperate. I'm going to get all of this sorted out. And then when I am better, when I am well, when things have sorted themselves out, that's when I can re-enter the community. That's when I can go back and be with my people. But isn't that utterly the wrong way around? Isn't that completely the opposite of what these guys do? Peter and John don't disheartened go off on their own and hide away and process it. And then finally, when they've got their act together, when they've girded their loins enough, come and fellowship with God's people. No, their reflex, their response, their first instinct is to go and to be with their people. I think that's how it should be for us. In the most difficult of times, in our most difficult of times, we need to come together more, not separate ourselves out. It's certainly easier said than done, especially when it's, a, it's an individual hurting. Here it seems that the threat was being made against the entire community, so it was something to be shared. For us, sometimes it's an individual situation. It's an individual suffering or persecution. And in that sense, we, we may feel ashamed sometimes or feel for some reason that we need to have everything answered and sorted and right before we can come together with God's people. But God's instruction to us, the example laid out for us by this early spirit filled church 
is that when things get hard, they are driven together. Well, that's the first thing. The second thing is what they do when they're driven together. That when they come together with their own people, they go together to their God in prayer. They filled everyone in with what had happened and then they prayed. Now in the book of Acts, we've had a couple of sermons already. We've had Peter on three separate occasions standing up and linking the circumstances to the scripture, showing and instructing people how they should live and move forward. Before Pentecost, when they're replacing Judas, at Pentecost, when he's explaining the, the sound and the sight and the tongues, um, after the healing, Peter has gone up and he's preached. But here, I think I'm right in saying, is the first prayer recorded from the mouths of Jesus's followers. And I, for one, find it incredibly instructive. Remember, these are the same people who went to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And now we hear how that teaching had impacted them, how it had shaped them and shaped their prayers. I don't know whether prayer was one of the things that came to your mind when you were considering that reflex in difficult circumstances. I've got to confess, it's very rarely my first response. But even if it was, I doubt that the prayers that we would often pray would look and sound like this. Look where they begin. They begin by filling their hearts, filling their minds with who it is that they're praying to, who God truly is. Do you know we need to do that? When times are hard, when circumstances strike, when everything around us is screaming silence on the name of Jesus, we need to about turn. And we need to remind ourselves and each other just who it is that we come before. Sovereign Lord. I'm reliably informed by the commentaries that this expression, Sovereign Lord, has in mind the kind of totalitarian authority of people like the Sanhedrin and the, the chief priests and the, the Roman authorities. Those who speak and their will must be obeyed. But here are the disciples, they say, no, not those voices, but yours. Hasn't Peter said earlier, you judge what is right in your own eyes. To listen to you or to him, you be the judges. And they come and they acknowledge there is one voice, one master we must listen to. And it is you, the one who is maker of the heavens and the earth and the sea. And if we've left everything, anything out, everything that exists within them. Their first move in prayer, which is their response to difficult circumstances, is to fill their hearts and their minds and their mouths with the vastness, with the grandness, with the glory and the power of God. Do we do that? Do we intentionally proclaim to ourselves and to each other just who it is that we're praying to? Just who it is who we're entrusting ourselves to? Jesus taught them to pray. Firstly, not about their situations, not about their problems, 
our Father, the one who is in heaven, the one whose name and will it is that needs to matter above all things. See, the disciples had learned that and we need to learn it too. That when we come to prayer, one of the most important and useful and things that will serve us the most will be to acknowledge and describe and to build up this fuller, truer picture of who it is that we're praying to. They fill their minds, they fill their hearts, they fill their mouths with who God is. And then they go on and they remind themselves. They remind themselves of what it is that God has said he would do and what God has done. They quote Psalm 2 here, why do the nations rage in vain? Why do the people plot? Why do the kings of the earth and the rulers band together against your holy and anointed one? And, and, and they take this psalm as a, as a prophecy or an indicator, a describer of what is inevitable. That the principalities, that the powers, that the authorities of this world will ultimately stand in opposition to God. And that they've lived through that, Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews in Jerusalem all conspired against Jesus. They remind themselves that everything that has happened in terms of the persecution of their master who they now follow, in whose name they now face persecution themselves, none of that took God by surprise. That he is the very sort of God who sees and understands and uses even our rebellion to achieve his wonderful purposes. They have this clear picture in their mind now of who God is. They remind themselves how God has been at work even through circumstances similar to those that they're facing themselves. And then at last they bring their request. And it is a shocking request. Verse 20 now, now Lord, consider their threats and wipe them out. Now Lord, consider their threats and turn them around. No, this is what it says. Now Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants, us, to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They ask for more of the very thing that has got them in trouble in the first place. It is remarkable, isn't it? Where our prayers would no doubt focus on the removal of this roadblock. That doesn't even seem to cross their minds. What they desire from God is the confidence, the boldness to keep on doing that which has brought about opposition in the first place. It genuinely is remarkable and it is genuinely totally different to the sorts of prayers that we so often pray when we do reach this reflex action. I think it's because they know the true story of it all. It's because they know that the most important thing isn't their immediate safety. The important they, because they know that the most important thing isn't the uh, immediate immediate upholding of their rights and liberties and things like that. They know the true story that Jesus is in control of it all. That Jesus is the one who has overcome such opposition, himself and in our place. 
And they know the true story that Jesus is the one who will see them through regardless of the opposition that they face. And so their request is for boldness to speak louder and spiritual power to see lives more and more transformed in that otherworldly, heavenly, extraordinary way. And they did indeed speak with boldness. As we move on in Acts come autumn time, we're going to find more and more opposition becoming more and more intense. But they know that, that that's okay because they know the truth. That's okay because God said long ago through David, through his Holy Spirit, that that's the sort of way things are going to go. But that's okay because God allows his servants to rise through it and beyond it. It is better to listen to God than to those who oppose him. They know the truth. So what? So what does that mean for us this morning? Well, I guess the same two things really. That we need to be a people who do not neglect our family. The promise through all of Peter's sermons to those who would repent, turn, trust in Jesus has been for salvation, forgiveness and family, finding a place amongst God's people. And the lesson for us, for those who have trusted in Jesus, who have become part of his temple, of his church, of his flock, of his bride, is to not neglect that, especially when times are tough. The church is the place that is appointed by God for all those who are weary, all those who are battle-worn, all those who are wounded, to come and to be revived. Now, that's not to say church services have this magic power, no. But keeping in those relationships that are founded on grace and kindness and submission to the best interests of one another, those are so vital. If we're to find the healing and the confidence and the hope to live and move forward each day. So what? You don't need to fix yourself up before you come back. We need to make sure that we come back constantly into relationship with one another in order to be fixed up. That's the first so what. Don't neglect your family. Don't neglect the church. Don't neglect the place that God has called you to in order to heal your deepest wounds. But secondly, we need to train ourselves to respond in prayer and to pray like this. We need to train ourselves to respond in prayer and to pray like this. Well, how do we do that? One suggestion is to pray with others. If we're not confident in praying ourselves, we're not sure what our prayers should look like, well then spend some time praying with other people. And that's going to have two benefits. Firstly, you might hear the prayers of folks who are further down the line in their Christian life than you. And you might be instructed in how to shape and how to, to voice the things that the Spirit is moving and calling you to pray. You might learn from their prayers. But the second thing is that you will actually be praying with them. You'll be putting it into practice yourself. Sometimes it can be hard just to sit and to pray in silence on your own. And having that push, that impetus to be a part of a praying community will help you to actually do it. And there is no substitute for actually doing it. 
You're not going to learn to ride a bike just by watching YouTube videos and thinking about it and reading it. You need to put your feet on the pedals, your bum on your seat, on the seat, your hand on the handlebars and go. And you'll fall off a couple of times, but you know what? Those knees will scab over, the cuts will heal, and you'll learn. And so we need to train ourselves to respond in prayer and to pray like this. And we can do that maybe by praying with others. Another suggestion is to use the prayers of others ourselves. To take old, well-worn and proven prayers and to pray them ourselves. Do you know every week on our online service we have one of these prayers inspired by the Valley of Vision? The Valley of Vision is a collection of prayers in the, in the spirit, in the, in the style of the Puritans. And the actual book, The Valley of Vision, can be quite difficult uh, to understand and to follow. So we've modernised them a little bit. We've maybe shaped the, um, the language a bit so that it makes more sense in our context. But it's, it's praying those things that have already served saints through the centuries. And maybe that's something we can do, you can do, as you train yourself, teach yourself to pray in response to circumstances and to pray like this is to pray the sorts of prayers that others have already cultivated and used and benefited from. Pray with others. Pray the prayers of others from church history. Suggestion number three is to learn the story of the Bible. It strikes me that when these believers prayed, they prayed in a way that showed that they really did know what life was all about. They really did know who God was. They had whole and healthy expectations of what their own lives would be as followers of Christ. We need to learn the story if we're to pray effectively. And by the way, I keep on using that expression, story. Story doesn't mean make-believe. Story I use in the sense of how we put things together how we put things into context, how we make sense of the reality that we experience. Like I already said, these are people who knew that Jesus was in control, this sovereign Lord who had already spoken. They knew that Jesus was one who had overcome. They knew that Jesus was one who would see them through and that shaped so massively their prayer. We need to be deep in God's word. Not just in little isolated verses and instructions of how we live our lives, but the big story of how it all fits together to help shape our expectations and to shape how we converse with God. Pray with others. Use the well-worn prayers of others. Learn the story so that our expectations when we come to pray are suitable. And lastly, pray the Bible. Pray the Bible. If you don't know what words to use yourself, open the book of Psalms, open a passage of scripture, read it, pray it. Because the Bible is a place that does this very thing, which does focus on God and who he is before all other things. It is a book which reveals to us what it is that he has said and promised and done. And a book which leads us in the direction of of where our own hearts, where our own desires should be when we come to seeking him and asking him for things. So you would do well worse than to pray the Bible 
for yourself. So, what's your reflex? When life throws you a curveball, when that roadblock appears, when you hit that pothole in, in the road, how do you respond? Flee to your family. Go deeper into relationship with your brothers and sisters in the temple of Christ. And pray. A pray prayers which lift your eyes up to him. Who fill your mind and your heart with what he has done, what he will do. And ask him to be with you each and every step of the way. Because Jesus is one who has promised to be with us always. Even to the end of the age. Amen.